Episode 137 of the Talking Bollocks Podcast brought to you by Go Loud. It's me, Terry Flower. It's me, COB. And this week we're joined by... Eddie Mullins. Eddie, what's the story, pal? Well, I said I'd come back to you. I told you I'd dish the dirt when I, when I retired. <laughs> it's a, a tell-all from Eddie uh, Mullins. It'll be over very quickly, lads. Yeah. There's no dirt. <laughs> Put the kettle on there. Uh, Eddie, it's a part two. You were in with us before. And uh, you're in with us because you have a bit of a different role this time coming in to speak to us. But we'll get into that all now in a couple of minutes anyway. Can we talk about how hard it is to get Eddie into the podcast? Players, actually, yeah. So the last time, first time you came in, Eddie, we tried to set it up. And we couldn't because dates didn't align. And then we did Sarah up, but no, Terence didn't. Terence didn't confirm it. That's what happened. So we there. had a back and forth, and I forgot to send the location at the time. Yeah. And, and then I text Eddie on the day, been like, "What's up? Are you still coming in at half five? He's like, "You never text me back, you cunt." Yeah. So, so we got you in there, and then you were supposed to come in two weeks ago, and then Terence had the nightmare with his tooth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you were supposed to come in yesterday. And we're at a funeral. And you were at a funeral. <laughs> and then today, I showed up an hour early thinking that I was late. <laughs> I'm literally just floating around the building on my own. Why? Did you not leave? I went out and I got a smoothie. I was wandering around town then. I was just sitting there, just annoying people who walk in and all. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> what do you do? I was just pressing buttons and everything. Then uh, Eddie came in. And a bit of a sad story myself. I had uh, a couple of meetings today and uh, one of them I thought was for four o'clock today. And it's actually four o'clock tomorrow, so I was sitting in the green there for about an hour and a half before I come in. I said, oh, I better not go in too early, look too early. <laughs> so you're a jinx, Eddie. Actually, look, I'm here now. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah, yeah we'll get it done. Have you any zingers? Because I don't. I thought zingers were a thing of the past, lads. You're still doing zingers. We kind of are, Eddie. Yeah, yeah. we kind of loosely. If you come up with them, we just throw it in, you know what I mean? Well, the last three th- zingers I gave you, I thought they were great. And you said, nah, no, nah, that was done, that was done, that was done. Yeah, so. it usually happens. I tell you what, when you had us up in the joy that time, <laughs> the boys gave us. Remember yeah. the page? Terrence yeah. used to come in with that page. Where did you put it? it? It's in the office somewhere. It's out there somewhere. Terrence used to pull that page out. Mihal Martin sitting yeah. there and he used to take this A4 <laughs> copy out and be like, Mihal. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, did he have any singers, Michael, did he? Yeah, he did. Roy yeah, Roy Keane and Robbie Keane. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He knew, he knew what to do. It, it was the cork thing, you know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. But uh, I asked Calvin a singer there in the bonus episode yeah. last week. I'll just hit you with it, yeah? Would you rather go blind, yeah, for the rest of your life? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll treat you. Now remember, I'm an old man here. <laughs> so if you're on the verge, just watch the telling It won't be long. <laughs> I'll treat your close family members go blind for the rest of their life. Oh Jesus, that's uh, well. I suppose at my age, like me, I suppose yeah. Me. Why do you keep saying your age, Eddie? Hold yeah, I know I'm ninety next week. <laughs> no, no, no. Those are age. Yeah. No, I suppose yeah. That's, that's an interesting question, mm-hmm. isn't it? You yeah. know, uh, like if we were talking about me in-laws, maybe yeah, uh, let yeah. Them go blind, you know. Um, but uh, close family, yeah. Mm. Well, look, the politically correct thing to say was that I'd prefer to go blind to see any of my family go blind, but you know. <laughs> have you any zingers? No, I haven't any, haven't any, but we're only getting back into the swing of things with the podcast, so we'll start coming out with Yeah, some we're only know. getting... Eddie, the wheel of my bike, actually. Yeah. Turned up? No, it didn't. It's it, it's in Mount Joy. Fuck, oh, is it? Right, yeah, yeah, turned up there, yeah. Is it no, legit? No, it actually is, Eddie. <laughs> no, I'll tell you the truth. So we made a video about Terence's bike getting robbed. When did your bike get robbed? March? A few months ago, yeah. Terence's bike got robbed earlier on the year, and... Uh, 
it was a very funny story and we decided to make a video about that and show it at the live shows that we'd done in June. But we decided to make like a crime documentary thing about it and Eddie had a cameo in it. <laughs> but there was a bit of truth behind that because you, you were told that the wheelie of bike was in Mount Joy. Yeah. And you were getting on to Eddie okay. to find it. But then we kind of clicked like, why would it be in the prison? It'd be in the guard station. Yeah. Because the person who had it got arrested. So obviously it'd be in the guard station. But we went in that day when he rang you, we actually went into the guard station and we were like, look, we were told as a wheel of a boy car. I know that might sound stupid. Tell us to fuck off or whatever. And your mum's like, no, it actually might be here. And we were like, <laughs> what? And he goes, yeah, yeah, there's loads of them outside. Taryn showed him a picture of it. He was gone for about 10 minutes, wasn't he? Then he came back and he goes, can I see that picture again? He went off for 10 minutes more and he goes, I'll tell you where it is. It's in Star Street. <laughs> no, honestly, Eddie, he said, they get all the wheels and bikes and scraps and all that. And then every two months or something he said didn't he they moved them from there if they're not claimed down to Star Street and we were like nah the effort of going down to Star Street and you know because we were preparing ourselves for an altercation we were like right we're ready for the animal. Well, we were hyping yeah. each other up yeah. before we went in and your like, man if he was gets smart, if he gets smart I'll get smart turn into Joe Wales you can fuck up I've nothing to lose here and your man was saying I think he knew who you were yeah, I think he had a feeling who we were everybody knows who you are now but uh I'm not going all the way down to Bladen, Star Street and having to hype yourself up again to go in for another argument, you know. Because you just don't know, don't you? Don't you don't know, yeah. So it might be in Star Street and... Yes. Look. So if anyone works in Star Street and is listening to this, should he don't know what the wheel looks like? Just text Terrence, he'll send you the wheel or the picture <laughs> of it. Just give me any wheel of a trick. Any wheel of a trick. I'll put it up on, uh, you know that Crime Stoppers? Yeah, sort of vibes you, Eddie and Pell. Yeah, actually, anyone that does walk in sorcery, just text Terence on Instagram and he'll send you a picture of the wheel. Don't start having coppers not texting me. Okay? Look, sure, nothing new there, what? <laughs> <laughs> they all have your number anyway. Yeah, yeah. stop it. Christian WhatsApp was late last year. Right, uh, Eddie, like I have you had anything to talk about? No, but I think we'll have a, a nice conversation here, Eddie. Okay. Uh, anyway, so... We'll yeah. kick us off. You have a bit of news for us, Eddie. Yeah, so I've left I, I, I've uh, left the prison service. I worked, as I told you the last time, 32 years. Um, and uh, I'd say I'm retired, but I'm not retired because I'm going into a new gig. I have two roles now. I'm going into work at Merchants Key. So Merchants Key is an addiction service and a homeless service and on the on the South Keys there. And uh, an awful lot of people that I would have worked with in prison over the years have used the service as a Merchants Key. So I see it's a good... Uh, it's a good opportunity for me. I hope I can add some value to the... There's a very good team there. They provide a very important service. And then I'm also chairing a, a committee, which sounds very technical and very high-tech, but it's not. It's a committee. It's called the Local Community Safety Partnership. And it's the North Inner City Local Community Safety Partnership. And I know you're both very passionate about the North Inner City. Mm. So it would be great if we could have a bit of a conversation about that. It's very topical at the moment. There's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of media and hype and attention focused on criminality in the north inner city. And there's no doubt about it, there is a problem and there are issues there that need to be addressed. But in my view, it's in no way as chaotic as people are portraying it out to be. There is a, an element in the media that are waiting for the next incident so they can dramatise it, I think. People have disagreed with me on that. But I think it's important that there's a balanced perspective put on that. Like the north inner city... On any given day, about 250,000 people travel through the city. On a high, we'd say high periods like uh, tourist season, Christmas, there's 400,000 people come through the city. And for them, for the most, 99.9% .9 people come through the city. They have a good experience. 
in the north inner city, there's a hundred places to eat. You've Crow Park, a million people visit Crow Park every year. The O3, uh, the O2, the O2, the three arena. Yeah, there's, O2 three arena. Yeah, yeah the <laughs> there's, there's about, the point as I would have called it, there's about 250,000 people go to the point every year. You know, the Abbey Theatre, there was an incident there, about 20,000 people go to the Abbey Theatre every year. So when you look at it in the context, the amount of people that come into the city, and when people have a bad experience, it is tragic, it's terrible. Nobody wants to see anybody attacked or injured or to have a bad experience. But it has to be put into that context, I think, of a city of the size of Dublin. Like I heard in a story this morning, I haven't verified it, but it's incredible if it's true. Chicago, you know, very popular city with the Irish people, about 2.6 million people. So roughly twice the population of Dublin. And I'm informed, reliably informed, that there were 37 murders in Chicago last weekend. Now, in one weekend. So not suggesting that Dublin should be mimicking Chicago, but when you look at it into the context of, of the city, we're, we're all from Dublin, we know, we've all had good experience, we've all seen things that you don't like about Dublin, but it is in no way as chaotic as it's been portrayed, particularly over this summer, in my view. And I've spoken to a lot of people who have, we'd say, skin in the game and lots of just business people, you know, have worked the guards, you know, Dublin City Council, the HSC, and they're all working hard to, uh, we say, to improve the situation. And there's no doubt about it, there's pockets of the north in the city that there's an over-concentration of people that are in kind of chaotic lifestyles and that there's lots of complex needs and there's no doubt about that. Talbot Street's an area that's highlighted a lot of late. Talbot Street has about 20,000 people go through it every day. Most people don't have any difficulty. But there is a high concentration of people that have complex needs, you know, accommodated in and around Talbot Street area and that needs to be addressed. And I wouldn't try and underestimate or minimise that in any way but I do think we need to put a balanced perspective on Dublin and the north inner city in particular. And the north inner city, look, it goes from, which is Tony Batter, right down to the north wall. So it's a big area, you know, a big population. A lot of intergenerational you know, families that have lived there for three, four generations would live nowhere else, are totally embedded in it. And it's very disrespectful to those people for everybody to be talking about the north inner city in a, such a negative way, you know. So I'm going to ask you the questions on this because you're both, mm. you know, rooted in the north inner city. Does it bother you to hear all this? The, yeah. this yeah, of course yeah. it does, yeah. The thing that bothers me the most is when you see it, people are like, ah, what's new? Obviously, like they expect it. They expect the next headline to come up and it's only a matter of time and stuff like that. And you're like, it's hard because it's hard on a number of aspects. It's hard just to like, argue with anyone on the internet regardless. Yeah. You know what I mean? If people say fucking Man United are sure, it's hard to even argue well, with people about that. Certainly can't argue about that. No, but go on. But go on. topics like that and you're like, but it's hard to argue with people especially when they see who we are and they're just like, of course you're biased coming from that. But my one point I always bring up to people is, have you ever experienced anything walking through that? And people are like, oh, I've walked through that in fear. But that's a premeditated fear because you are told that's a bad area. So you're like, fuck, fuck, fuck. But I know a load of people and a load of people have messaged me and I've met people through my life when I was in college, people who come up from the sticks and they were living around the area and they were like, oh, I'm living in some shithole, but it's a great area and I know the locals and this person was great and that person always says hello to me and I'm like, you're literally a blowing, you're living in the area a wet day and you've already felt welcomed, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that sense of community and warmness and open arms is something that I can't really put it into words. You just have to experience it. Like walk through town with either me or Terence before the podcast We'd say hello to 90% of people anyways, because that's just what people do. Yeah. And 
Well, no, but there's a tradition of that in Dublin, well, that's you know, what, yeah, especially in the city. Knows each yeah, there is a community thing. There is one or two areas on the north in the city, particularly around the Talbot Street area, where that sense of community isn't really there, right? And that's because of a multitude of problems. You have a lot of, you know, different cultures. You have a lot of uh, people with complex needs. Yeah. But when you go into communities, and you just mentioned, like you go from Ballybock, you go all around the, the areas where there is a sense of community. There's what we call the pride of community, pride in your community now. So there's there's lots of positives. And that can be replicated. And this is what this committee is about. This committee is, the safety partnership is about, first of all, promoting that sense of safety and looking at the issues that are there. Like there's definitely an issue with young people, you know, throughout the summer, people bored, right? So young lads in particular, teenagers, right? This is the focus group that we are talking about. But the solution is not a punitive measure. So arrest people, put them through the criminal justice process. The solution is to, well, first of all, look at what's the cause. Why is it? Why are these people, you know, and, and, and stop using derogatory terms like the media were using the term feral teenagers. Yeah, yeah. Like feral is what you say to describe an animal. So if you're going to use language like that to describe teenagers, yeah, they have problems. There are complex issues here. But that's certainly not the approach. And 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 a tougher criminal justice, uh, some people would talk about, you know, a tougher criminal justice approach to this. But in my experience, it has never worked. I mean, punitive approaches don't work. There is a requirement for, uh, you know, imprisonment and, and, and various things like that. But there's also a requirement for support and to get in and understand what the problem is. And like teenage young lads, complex needs, particularly going around the city, you know, arresting them and bringing them into guard stations is not the solution. It's not going to change it, you know. That'd be my view. Mm. Another thing that adds into it then, the North NRC, in particularly Talbot Street, Gardner Street area, is riddled in emergency accommodations. Yeah. So you yeah. just have a lot of people who are in bad Difficult situations. Difficult yeah. situations, yeah. And then you're just loitering around. Yeah. So then people have to be out all day hanging around and that adds into the equation then as well. Mm. So the more you look into it, the more I don't see any other outcome other than manage the client. And all this stuff about, oh, look at Let's Pedestrianise O'Connell Street. It should be like the Champs-Élysées and all this shite. The place is in bits and it annoys me when you see TD saying, oh, that place is full of druggies. You know that you are in the best position to change that. Mm. And here you are criticising it. So if you have to critique that, that's a reflection of your walk. Mm. But the you funny I mean? thing about, you know, people talk about drug users, you know, and it's always comes into the conversation about, you know, uh, drug users openly using, openly dealing on the, on the street. Sorry to come across you, Eddie, but there's a fella on Twitter, he's a photographer, and he was going around photographing people using and he'd be like, look at this, this was 50 metres from Pear Street Garda Station. I was like, what are you taking a picture of them for? Mm. doesn't matter where they do it. Don't be taking a picture and shaming people. Yeah, yeah. And like, you, you see, the funny see thing about it are. is, I come up Tobble Street, I was on it twice today, right? And, you know, there, there are people in difficult situations, no doubt about it. People are intoxicated, people have taken drugs and all that. The first thing I say is, they never abuse anybody. Right. Mm. They're very vulnerable in many respects because of their drug addiction, because of their circumstances. So they might sit there and for some people it might look unpleasant to see somebody, mm. but they'll never abuse anybody. Yeah. They'll never attack anybody. They're more vulnerable themselves than the people that are walking down the streets. People don't like to see them on the streets. But the reality is there's a concentration of drug treatment facilities in the city that probably should be spaced out across the city. So you'll find a lot of people will travel in from the suburbs to the addiction centres for their treatment and for their support. And that's good. You want people to get as much treatment and support as they can get. But that will bring people into the city centre as opposed to being out in their community. So there's no doubt that's an issue. But we can't keep, as you say, shaming people. Like, if you had, and I hope this doesn't offend anybody, but if you had 20 cancer patients sitting in Talbot Street, right, 
there would be a massive amount of sympathy for those people. So 20 people congregated, you know, going through a serious illness and there would be huge support, as there should be for them, right? But if you put 20 chronic drug addicts together, they're malingering, they're loitering, they're doing this, they're a nuisance, they're this, that and the other. But there are also 20 very sick people. Mm. It's a different type of sickness, but they're sick. So there is kind of uh, double standards in relation to, you know, illness, mental illness, drug addiction, and then we'd say the more respectable illnesses. You know the point? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And and I think that's something that, you know, as a society, we need to be much more accepting. And like, you know, I'm going to work in Merchants Key now, starting on Monday. That's going to be a new challenge for me. But I know from my previous uh, employment in the prison service that the amount of people who come out of prison who are, would say, going through a recovery programme in prison, it's vital that that recovery programme continues when they leave prison. Merchants Key and Liffey, all these organisations are there to support people. And there's a, an element of uh, society are constantly criticising, you know, open drug use, open drug dealing. It's unfortunately a part of reality. We can't keep shame, as you say, Calvin, shaming these people because of this. Yeah. That'd be my view anyway. So remember I told you a few facts and yeah. a few notes. <laughs> so uh, the risk of death by drug overdose is up to 12 times higher within the first two weeks of a person's release from prison. Why, why would that be, though, I wonder? So what happens is if, if somebody is in prison and they're going through treatment process or we say they're after detoxing or they're, you know, they're clean, ah, for want of a better word. Yeah. So their tolerance level is much lower than yeah. somebody who's on a constant, uh, you know, constantly using drugs. And you leave prison, and we'll say, particularly if you're going back in society where there isn't a huge amount of support and you're offered some sort of a drug. And the potency is definitely yeah, higher. Yeah, much higher. And the effect is much higher. And yeah. there is no doubt about it. That's a very vulnerable period for somebody who's a drug user when they leave prison is that couple of weeks until they transition to if it's a methadone program or whatever it is and then again they don't know what they're getting on the street you know? yeah. that's the difficulty so that, that would be right yeah. that's right. a mad old crazy isn't it I've seen that, that I didn't even look at it like that though because I was thinking in my head like it's like it's not a leading secret drug use still goes on in prisons but obviously a lot of them might go on to the detox programs and things like that so when they come out they obviously are mm. very vulnerable like but that's that's a scary old stat that. and it's probably a mentality of well not, I don't want to glamorised but like a celebration kind of thing like you have the freedom I can do this yeah. now you know like that so yeah. yeah you know it's funny though more and more I've seen people coming out of prison like there was two lads one one lad that was coming out just a couple of weeks before I left uh, going for a walk and the guy got out left serving a sentence and we both walked out to the North Circle Road together and he looked left and right he didn't know where to go he didn't know whether to go down Dorset Street or to head up towards Fibsbury yeah. so like he was getting out of prison with nowhere to go, yeah. right? And another guy I met who had been, and he looked, this guy, I met him, I met him in, in one of the services in town. He looked well, I thought, you know, he'd been out for a while. But he told me then, he was off drugs, but he was drinking serious amount of alcohol and he was fighting with everybody. He was fighting on the street. So he was homeless, right? So he was using the nighttime accommodation, but throughout the day he was drifting around and he said his life was chaotic. And he really... He nearly said prison was better for him yeah. because he the structure. Now, there's something radically wrong in society when a person will say that they're better off in prison Inside than, outside, than they yeah. are outside. You know? So there, there are serious issues. That's a, but that's a very common thing. Like, that's literally institutionalised. Institutionalised. Yeah. Literally yeah. the term for it, you know what I mean? If there's nothing in place for these kids, yeah, like somewhere for them to go, if there is, let's say, crime going on in the area, there's people are selling drugs and stuff like that, there's no getaway for them. What's the next thing that they're going to do? They're just going to grow up doing the same thing and it's the same old cycle going on and on and on and on. So how do we expect change 
when it's just the same old thing that's going on, when there's no help from You're it. right. And, you know, there is there, there are a lot, like the NEIC, the North East mm. City, that um, organisation, there's a lot of funding going in to support community projects. And there are lots of community projects happening, but there are a hard-to-reach group of people, and they're particularly teenage lads, and they're difficult to reach, right? And there's where there's a greater need and greater need for a greater concentration on the services and, and the likes of things that they want to do. So, for example, sport is a big thing. Yeah. So, you know, soccer, I know we laugh at gas. Like, there's no, there's no GAA club in the north no. of the city. So there's a really, there's an opportunity for the GAA to step up and say, you know, let's concentrate. I know the difficulty is where you're going to put a pitch because everywhere's nearly built on at this stage. Mm. But I think you have to really identify things that appeal to it teenage lads for example like there's no point in talking about you know we're going to put service in that they're not going to avail of that they're not interested in but it's interesting you talk about 20 years ago because I could go further 20 years back and we had always had a, a summer project for example mm. and I can remember going to the north side I can't remember was it Markovich Pool or whatever it was yeah, yeah. is that still there yeah yeah. yeah. Is, so yeah. that's where we went from the south side or the ivy bats which was I don't know whether you've ever heard of the ivy bats so no. the, what we used to call swimming pool the bats right mm. and the ivy bats was over there towards St. Patrick's Cathedral here just not far from here and it literally was built in the Victorian age but that's where we went and we'd be brought by the summer project leaders yeah. and you'd go to the Phoenix Park or you'd, it was always something to keep and that was 40 years ago I'm not involved in community projects so I don't know how good or how bad they are now but they certainly worked they kept people young lads young people they kept them amused they kept them occupied and if you think about it the summer seems to be the most problematic time for, you know, teenagers because they have nothing to do. Mm. So it kind of coincides with school. It kind of coincides with all that. Now, I know people say, well, these people are not going to school. That may or may not be the case. Mm. But it certainly is no coincidence that in the summer there seems to be more of an issue mm. than in the winter. And in the winter, you'd expect it to be more of an issue because it's darker. Yeah. Because it's more, you know, it's it's more uh, dodgy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. What but, go, sorry. Yeah, no, I was just going to compliment what you were saying there about communities, about the youth workers and stuff like that and, and, and them communities because we needed them growing up. We had uh, Darden O'Connor on here before. He's a youth worker and he's a friend of ours as well. And he come on spoken about the benefits of that for teenagers growing up. And like, we can't compliment them enough like, yeah. for what yeah. they did for us growing up. In terms of like, like so many of the kids didn't even have a dinner at home. So they go to the youth club and they got fed down yeah. there. We, they were brought on trips. It was just a good place to go there. And we would have been lost without them growing up. So they are essential now. Obviously, like you were saying as well, I don't know what, what sort of state they're in or how much funding they're getting. Or... There's a lot of funding going into community projects. And I, and I think for the most, like, and it goes right across the ages. So there's lots of support for, you know, older, the older communities, lots of yeah. support for various communities. The one area that seems to be a problem, and as they call it, a hard-to-reach group, is teenage lads. And that's where all of the hoo-ha that's gone on over the summer has been. It's been associated with lads on bikes going up and down Talbot Street, up and down Sheriff Street, all those kind of... And it's recorded by people at three o'clock in the morning. It's put up on Facebook or whatever the, your uh, <laughs> platform is. <laughs> and it then becomes a big uh, issue and it's it's kind of escalating then into that the city is lawless. And the city isn't lawless, you know. And there is difficulties, but for the most... Most, as I said at the beginning, most people going into the city have a good experience, have a great experience. If you're going to the Abbey, if you want to go to the cinema, if you want to go to, you know, whatever it is, Crow Park, the, the Three Arena, mm. you know, you go and you have your good time and you leave, you know. We spoke about it, obviously, last week as well. And then before we even start recording here, me and Calvin said there is no area in Dublin that's oh. a no-go zone. Yeah. There's 
Like, I don't care what you're hearing in the media, what you're seeing in the media. Do you know, Eddie, we said it from day one, from episode one. The reason why we started the podcast was to change the perspective of the inner city, yeah? And I just feel like now, with social media and stuff like that, one bad thing happens. I'm not saying the thing... And we left the answer for it Yeah, as well. It's but I'm crazy. Just, I'm not saying don't disregard what happened. Obviously, every bad thing that happens... Of you never want punishment to see it. and whatever yeah. you don't want to say. Yeah. But every bad thing that happens, it's all points there. Us, first of all, it's like, oh, we'll let them answer for that because we're, we're like, oh, we want to change the perspective. The spokespeople for the Lord. Nearly, though, yeah. nearly. And you have radio stations and everything else trying to reach out to us to get us to speak on behalf of, you know what I mean? And I think that's a bit ridiculous as well. But it's like every bad thing that happens, the media is all over it and everybody's all over it and this is a no-go. They just make it out to be so much worse than what it is. And if you, at the time, because it does be sensitive when any situation happens, like right away, it's sensitive. So I never speak on it straight away because it's sensitive and everyone just jumps on your back and, and say, you're you as bad have as them. all the information neither. Yeah, definitely. You know, like something might come out after the fact and you'd be like, I wish I had known that back then. But people just jump on you and say, oh, look at you, defend. So when you just let us sit and settle for a week or two and then kind of speak on it from a point of view of like, well, let's try and find out why this kind of happened. Well, not the fi- you know, and then you can kind of nearly get around to having a conversation. But at the time, it's so sensitive, and everybody just wants to say no goes on, scumbags, yeah. ferals, all this kind of thing. Well, you're right about that taking a breather and not saying that. And I've learned that myself over the yeah. years because you can jump in and you mightn't have all the facts. One of the problem with all the facts at the moment is that is to quote Donald Trump, it's all fake news. Fake yeah. news yeah. People can put anything they want up yeah, online, yeah. and people will believe it. So yeah. that is a big problem. Right? Yeah. But you're you're a hundred percent. I mean, and it's important that you defend the, the North and the Sea because there's enough people doing the opposite. You know, yeah. there's enough people, particularly people who have no real uh, affinity or association yeah. with the North and the City, are quite happy to talk about. Uh, like we 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 heard the advice from the American Embassy in relation to American tourists coming in. Now, first of all, I'd say that is good advice for any tourist in any part of the world. Is you, you think that was an exaggeration, Eddie? Well. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, if you think about Dublin and you think about, we'll say, London, Paris, or any city in America, they're always on high alert for terror, for example, for a terrorist attack, right? We don't have those situations in Ireland. We have a very stable country. It's a, a safe place to live, okay? When a situation happens, like the unfortunate thing in Talbot Street with the American tourists, it's a terrible thing to happen. It should be highlighted. It should be investigated. But it should be taken into the context of the amount of American tourists, for example, that come into Ireland every year, have a wonderful experience and go away and have no difficulty. So instead, you have one or two instances and you have a warning to American tourists to come into Ireland. As I say, I think that warning makes sense to any tourist. Don't carry lots of cash. Don't go around draped in jewellery and be mindful of where you are. But to make it specific to Dublin, I thought was, in my view, a bit over the top. Certainly was a bit over the top. Mm. And I thought there was a kind of irony coming from America, which is the worst country in the world in terms of shootings and in terms of, you know, violence, gun gun culture. And I did think that was a little bit uh, over the top myself. Yeah, Yeah. I thought it was a good call for us then to react to it. As in us, as in like a country, to react to it and show... No, it's actually not that bad. But then when you see fucking Helen McEntee walking around Talbot Street and she's like, this is a safe city and she's surrounded by 10 coppers. And they're like, you're not really doing us any favours here, you know what I mean? Mm. What's your opinion on how the Department of Justice and the Minister for Justice and how they're all handling it? Because I've seen that they have, they're like, oh, we gave 10 million euro extra for Garda overtime. But then there's Garda spokespeople coming out and be like, we don't want the overtime, we want more staff. We don't want to be doing more hours, we want actually more 
people in here to help manage the load. So I think people have to be realistic when they talk about, uh, I've met with the chief superintendent in Star Street, right, on a couple of occasions, right, and he will say he needs more staff, There's no doubt about it. But people have to be realistic and there is a little bit of politics going on, you know, uh, well, you know, this and that and the other would have solved it and wouldn't. You won't recruit guards quickly. It takes time. Okay, we are in a country where there's almost full employment. It's not as attractive. 20 years ago, people would take their arm off to get into the guards, right? Now it doesn't have that same appeal because there are other better paid jobs. So it's not the job that it was when I was growing up. Like, I remember my brother applying several times to get into the guards. And my mother thought if this would be like winning the lottery to get mm. into the guards doesn't have that same appeal, right? So it is more difficult to to recruit into the guards. And there's no point in every one per, one politician saying, oh, well, if the minister did this and the minister saying then if I they did that. Because we are where we are. And that won't solve anything. That's just kind of one-upmanship and playing politics with it. And the only loser of that is the people in the north inner city who are being labelled, you know, it's lawless, it's crime, it's full of crime. Be realistic about the problem and then try and find ways, solutions. And it isn't about police. You won't police your way over that. You know, mm. a police presence is important. There's no doubt about it. It gives people reassurance. All of that is important, right? But you won't police your way over it because it's simply not possible for a policeman to be on every corner in every street in the north inner city. And if you're down Talbot Street and somebody's on Marlborough Street getting mugged, it doesn't make much difference. You know, that mm. kind of way. So you can't police your way. It is about, I think, this is Eddie Mullins talking, I think it's about addressing the systemic problems. And you talked about them there, about opportunities, about education. Like it's funny, uh, statistic in prison, I think I told you before, about 70% of people in prison never completed a state exam. But if you went into any of the schools in the prison tomorrow, they're full of people who hated school as kids and now love it, right? They embrace it. They all their creativity. You've seen it yourself, lads, yeah, when yeah. you're in, right? All of this creativity, they want to learn. They want to suck up as much knowledge as they can. So if you could transition that into younger people who are a bit kind of detached from the education system and help them to see it. And it's it's not easy, lads. If it was easy, we'd have solved it many years ago. Yeah. But I think the focus needs to be on support. It needs to be on opportunity. Like, you can't get away from the fact that poverty has a huge impact on, you know, on criminal behaviour. Most of the people in prison come from backgrounds where there's been poverty, there's been trauma from childhood, there's been addiction issues, there's been mental health issues. And that's what you have to address. And when you address that, you will. And you might say you're going to lose a generation because I can tell you now, having done 32 years, I can see two generations that we've lost. So yeah. when I joined the prison service, and when I left the prison service, I was meeting the parents of the people that are now in prison that I knew as first generation prisoners, if you know what I mean. So you have to start with young people first and foremost and try and break that cycle because it is a cycle. It is it is unfortunate to say that the majority of people in prison come from, you know, I want to deprive backgrounds because people resent that when they talk, when you, you say you're deprived because we talk about community. Community spirit is huge, right? And mm. it's, it's probably stronger in working class areas than it is in more middle class areas, more affluent areas. But poverty is a big issue. Like if, if people can't afford the basics in life or if they're going without food or if they're going without, and you know, some people, I often hear people say, you know, uh, oh, well, yeah, but they smoke. Both parents smoke. Yeah, okay. Smoke is not a good thing. But don't, 
flogged them to death because yeah. they smoked. You know, that, that's not an Don't excuse. Don't let that distract you yes, from the exactly, fact that they're living yeah. in poverty what, yeah. because they have a smoke or even enjoy a drink Absolute, or whatever. Absolutely. Don't let that distract Sometimes you. that's the release. That's yeah. a release. But that's their luxury. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, we had Michal Martin in here and we put these kind of things to him about poverty because we, per- I don't know, yeah, we personally think poverty is probably the biggest reason as to why young fellas don't finish school mm. as the reason why they break the law, end up in prison, so on and so forth. I was looking at the stats on the lead up to having Michal Martin in here and over 5% of the country is living in current poverty now in 2023. What was that? Over a quarter of a million people, wasn't it? Yeah. Over a yeah. quarter of a million people are living in poverty now. Hmm. And then it was like over 12% of people are on, on living in borderline yeah. poverty. Yeah. So if the boiler breaks in the gaff, you're bollocks. Yeah. Mm. You're basically going to struggle. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that can't be happening in 2023. And it's again, it's, it's the same thing what we keep on speaking about. People think like it's 2023, things is better now. This is just an excuse. Things are fucking worse. Yeah. You know uh, I mean? there's, well, I tell you what, I think there's a bigger divide than ever. Okay? Yeah. So, yeah, so the, the rich are very rich. Yeah. yeah. And the poor are very poor. Yeah. Yeah. I think that to me now, just as a Joe Citizen looking on, seems to be more obvious now than it would have been... Um, you know, my my mother and father, when my mother passed away a few years ago, my father would have said, you know, uh, we were poor, but we were happy. You know, like, mm, yeah. But nobody who's poor is happy. Let's be yeah, honest. Yeah. It's only a saying. It's a myth. Yeah. It's a myth. A financial struggle yeah. is the worst struggle in the world. Yeah. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And it's the loneliest. Look, you know, you know, because people are proud. People don't want Yeah, them. exactly. And no one will admit it. No, no, yeah, no. That they it. haven't got it. Yeah. 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 Um, um, and that's the thing. There is a divide. And the people at the bottom, we are all kind of competing with each other. And yeah. fucking fighting amongst each other for bleeding scraps and resources when the attention needs to be shifted elsewhere and looking up and be like, mm. yeah, what about these fellas? You know what I mean? Well, your man Emma Kerwin said the best didn't he want you looking at your neighbour, you're not looking at the banker and yeah. everything else. You mm. know what I mean? He's mm. spot on. That was a really few years ago now. Yeah. Mm. But uh, Eddie, you mentioned something earlier on about people that have nothing to do with the inner city, not from the inner city, are always the ones with the most to say about the inner city, especially in media and stuff mm. like that. Why do you feel so yeah at the joining now this committee mm. for the north mm. inner city mm. and you've obviously worked in the north inner city mm. for a long time as well mm. why do you feel so strongly about the north inner city that's a good question because you know I, i'd always be proud to say that i'm south inner city right mm. and i am south inner city. but I, I i this sounds very noble lads and i meant to sound noble i consider myself a passionate dub i love dublin i remember uh suppose what I'm 56, by the way, is my age, they were asking me. So I, I would say 40 years ago, my father worked in Sheriff Street, right? And, you know, under the arches in Sheriff Street. Yeah. He worked for wine importers and they had a, a warehouse there. And I can remember going from school, walking down Talbot Street and down to Sheriff Street and getting the lift home from my father. And by the way, there was issues then, right? There was issues, I can tell you, my father was knocked down one time and the, the man that knocked him down was on a motor, scrambling a motorbike. Well, it wasn't a scrambler like you'd remember, but it was, you know, and on the 50 or something, you know. Yeah. But he was knocked down and, and, and there was big issues around the young that was on drugs or whatever at the time. So there's always been issues, right? So you have to put that into the context. 20 years ago, the big issue in Dublin was young lads sniffing glue. I don't know anybody ever heard about the glue sniffers. So there was a massive problem on O'Connell Bridge and, and all the bridges along the Liffey where young kids were sniffing bags of glue. And that was a big issue then. So there's always going to be an issue and a topic for people to talk about. But I've always loved Dublin. As I say, I'm more a Southsider than a Northsider. But having worked for 32 years in the Northside, I've got to know so many people. They are salt of the earth. So are the Southsiders, but you probably don't think that. But they are salt of the earth. There is a unique personality in the Dublin DNA that I love, to be honest with you. So. 
though. Yeah, no, I, it's just from the last episode I remember you saying you're a proud South Sider and mm-hmm. whatever. And whatever. They didn't so, want me on the South Side, so I got the gig on the <laughs> North Side instead. Yeah, yeah. So it was just hard to ask you the question. Mm-hmm. You mentioned something there as well that we, we mentioned in a bonus episode last week or the week before about whether things are worse now than they were when we were growing up. And we only looked at two things, wasn't it? Knife crime, knife crime. and something else. And was it people carrying knives? People actually being caught with knives and then people actually committing crime. Could have been knives. both knife things, yeah. But both were worse. There was what? 20 years ago. 20 like, years ago, it was yeah. worse than it is today. So but if you look at social media yeah. today, you will 100% believe that yeah. everything is worse today. Yeah. Where I, I didn't believe that for a second, but that's again, I'm growing up in the inner city and I'm growing up in a working class area and being around different places. It's always been there. Well, I tell you, it's like somebody said to me there recently about gangland, you know, all this thing about gangland and how organised it is. And gangland is organised, there's no doubt about it. But I can remember as a teenager there was gangland. There were families who were, there was criminal families as opposed to gangland. Yeah. So there's always, so again, I think the change, as you said, is social media. So everything's captured on social media. Mm. An incident happens, there's 10 phones out, it's recorded, it's up on all the various platforms, and all of a sudden everybody thinks that the city is chaotic, right? Mm. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there was a similar problems. Population was smaller, okay? So the, the level of, uh, the number of, of incidents were probably less, but that was based on population. So if, I'd say percentage-wise, statistic-wise, the problems were probably worse years yeah. ago. But social media is the dramatic change. And, and a lot of people forgetting that when you talk about garden numbers and talk about various services. Our population has gone up. I think when I was in school, the population was about 3.6 or 3.7 million in Ireland, right? It's now 5.1 million. So that's, in 40 years or whatever, that's how dramatic the population is. So that means that it puts pressure on services that put pressure on populations on people you know so yeah. and all I all I want people to do is kind of look at things in a more you know more rounded way and say yeah, yeah you know there's young lads there who need support or need to be disciplined or whatever it might be but it doesn't paint the full picture you know yeah. well that's yeah well that's the, the point I was trying to make there is social media will make it look like the inner city is a no-go zone yeah. and that, as well I know what all speaking about the inner city because we're all passionate about that but it's not even just that they'll make so many other areas that aren't the inner city out to be no-go zones it's Cherry Orchard Halle these type of places one thing now when I say one thing don't think I'm trying to minimise anything every crime is a crime and whoever does every victim has a story I fully agree with you 100% on that but I'm just saying it only takes for one thing, no matter what the crime is, to be recorded for on social media, and that's now what now goes on. They're all scumbags, feral kids, all this carry on. Yeah. And it's all down to social media. And uh, like you said, the media don't help a lot of journalists out there who have never stepped foot yeah. in a city have a lot to say, say about it. It's just a hot term, isn't it? Like, it's great to add on. That's a no-go zone. It's just yeah. this big yeah. new term. It's, oh, it's yeah. It makes it sound yeah. chaotic. It's like yeah, a, associate that with, like, Baghdad. You yeah. can't go down the there. Ghetto, like. yeah. You know what I mean? And then it's like, as he said, it's, by journalists who have never been in there or probably won't have to go through there and people are like oh you wouldn't go in there you weren't going to go in anyways yeah. it's not on your daily commute it's not somewhere you want to visit anyways but you're just going to drag it in the media you know no, I have to I, uh, on the flip side I have to say I've reached out to a number of journalists that I would have got to know over my um, time in the prison service and they've all been willing to sit down and listen to what I'm saying. So I, I spoke to a journalist today, and in fairness, he was very keen, and, and he'd be a crime journalist, so he'd be very well into, you know, sensationalism when needs yeah. to, when he needs to sensationalise. But he, to be fair, he sat down and said, yeah, I'm happy to come with you, I'm happy to visit the area, have a look, look at the problems, but also the positives. So there is some, a lot, well, I would say a good few journalists out there who are impartial. 
unfortunately, there's not enough of them. And there's no. a lot of journalists, who, like I have felt over the last couple of weeks that people have been waiting for the next incident to happen. Yeah. So you can... you, you, you can feel it now, yeah. yeah. It's almost like something, something's yeah. going to happen. And that's and not going to help, lads, because, no. you know, it, it, it's like I spoke to um, Richard Guiney, who's the CEO of Dublin Town, so he represents, you know, the business community in, in the city centre. And he's done it for years. And he, he said, we need to stop making this a bigger crisis than it is. We can address it. He said, I've, I've seen situations over the years. So you have to put it in the context of any large urban setting will have problems. Of course it will have problems. But if we keep making this out to be, it's nearly self-fulfilling. We're, we're making yeah. it out. People yeah. are, I can't get off the bus because, you know, there's going to be somebody waiting with a knife for me. That's just not true. So yeah. we need to be a bit more. What's the solutions, Eddie? I know you're saying like we need to put more preventative measures and opportunities in place, but like in terms of what, how do we do it? God, you know, if I had that now, I'd be a millionaire. If I so what's, what's your aim and target okay, goal? So, so your role? I think a greater collaboration. Like every, so if you look, the HSC have a role in terms of health promotion, health support, right? Dublin City Council have a massive role. Like Dublin City Council, biggest landlords in the, in, in the city, they have a responsibility for housing. And, you know, they do get a lot of criticism, but they do a lot of good work as well. Like there's lots of stuff happening at Dublin City Council. Like the new Diamond Park, for example. Yeah. It, really beautiful facility. Yeah, Need more of them, absolutely. But that's a step in the right direction. So Dublin City Council, the guards, working with the guards. The guards are not people's enemy. You know, they're, they're not the enemy. And the guards are an organ. Terence, you give me a, a strange look yeah, there. I well, the, I know I from, even from my guards. previous role, but yeah. even in terms of this role, I've spoken to the Chief Superintendent a number of times. I've met a number of community guards. And, you know, their job is much easier when their relationship with the community is good and they're getting on. When their relationship is in conflict with the community, it's a very difficult job for guards to do as well. So it's important that that relationship piece and they have to be part of the solution in terms of positive policing, not negative policing, positive policing, where the guards can build up a relationship with the lads that are on bikes, talk to them without it becoming, you know, an area of conflict. And it does work. Like, No, it definitely does. And I can speak from experience. Like, a couple of the boys would smoke a joint, did Yeah. Smoke a bit of weed or whatever. And sometimes in the summer, we'd be in the flats and we'd be having a little barbecue. One or two of the boys be having a bottle, one or two of the lads be having a joint. And a copper would come in and he'd kind of look and he'd say, Look, they would just say, don't, don't take the bollocks, boys. Don't start smashing bottles. You always do yeah. that. And they'll walk up and you're kind of going, no more fair bollocks to him. Yeah. Or put like, your bottles in a bag and put it in the bin. Yeah. Don't leave bottles around like, and then yeah. that's it. We'll, We'd always yeah. be like, he's fucking all right, him. You know what I mean? But two hours later, a different couple can come into the flats. But you know, start smashing the bottles himself. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I suppose if you look at the, the structure of the guards, right, you have so community policing is a really positive, and that's the type of guard you're talking about. Mm. So the guard who was there to build a relationship and build a rapport with the community. Then you'll have a guard who, as after getting a report, for example, that there's a group of teenagers and they're smashing bottles and they're causing a nuisance, and he has to go in with a different role. He has to go in and break that up because somebody has complained. Naturally mm. enough, so yeah. you can understand. It's a very policing is a very complex, um, and I'm not a policeman, so I, I don't have a history of it. But I know it's a very, very complex um, job, you know. So you have to bear in mind some people in the community will have a, a very low tolerance for you yeah. know the behaviour that you're mm. talking about, yeah. and like you know, it's it's a bit like people saying you know oh, I'm smoking a joint, like. Whether we like it or not, every part of the city you walk around now, you'll get the smell of yeah. people smoking. Because yeah. yeah. it's, you know, young people are more interested in 
a joint and the iron a point, mm. you know. So that's the reality yeah. of it. I'm not I, I'm coming down on either side saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying it has reality. to be a sense of reality yeah. about these things. But getting back to the guy, it is a complex one, you know. But I do think community policing, and I know I've been involved in, in Safety Farm Clondalkin for a few years as well, and the community guards come to our meetings and they're very chewed into, you know, young people and trying to get that balance. Yeah, we let so much go, but at the same time, lads, we want you to work with us on this. You can't be a complete nuisance and expect us not to react, you know, that kind of way. Yeah, but I, do you not think we need more examples of our parents are saying, look, I've had loads of encounters as well. They'd come over and they say, as long as you tidy up, you're not hassling anybody, we're not coming back. And then you think in your head, well, we could do this next weekend as well, lads, if we're clever here. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm. We won't ruin it for ourselves. And you need more of that. But I know people who are up in court, Eddie, over five euro worth of cannabis. Five euro? How do you even fucking quantify that? A joint. <laughs> They're saying there's five euro. I'll cost someone with a quantity of five euro. Are you not embarrassed going before the judge and saying this? Terence Powell was up here. Oh, yeah. What was the, what's the charge? Five euro possession. He was smoking a joint. Say what it is. You walk down the road, you've seen him standing outside, probably his, his car or his friend's house or whatever, and you smelt the joint and you've seen him with it, and you decided, this is a quick one for me. Bang. But then that cycle kicks off. They have to go through the court system. I said another fact at the start, over 50% of uh, people in prison are serving terms less than six months. What the fuck is that about? Yeah. So... Not only do you need more like kind of cop on, I'd say. It's cop on, you know what I mean? If you see someone smoking a joint, they're smoking a joint. Get on with it, like, you know what I mean? Like, it, at the end, it is illegal, right? But, like, it's well, a, technically it's illegal, yeah. It's a worth the hassle, though, yeah. of going through the whole system. Unless you bleed and search them and they have, I don't know, a thousand euro on them or something like that, and you're like, right, this is a bigger picture. But if someone casually smoking a joint, and this is something, Eddie, I know even from your day, because I know people your age and older that tell me, like, oh, back in the day, yeah, I used to smoke uh, weed and dope and this and that and all, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, like, this thing... It's not something that come up in my generation. It's yeah. grandparents, parents, kids are all doing it. So it's not something that's just come up and be like, oh, no, no, look, at, on this. you know, I think we'd say the prevalence of, of drugs, we'll just call it drugs for want of a better word, really started in the early 80s. And yeah. then from then on, it became much more uh, prevalent. And like, it's it's a multi-million euro business, right? Yeah. So it isn't fair, it's, it's totally unfair to say when you look at, we'll say the chronic addict and you say, oh, you know, that's the drug problem. Because the drug problem is middle class, right? Mm. Yeah. It is people who can afford to buy, and let's be honest, it's cocaine at the moment. So they can buy cocaine, they can use it at the weekend, and they can go to work on Monday. And even though it's a criminal offence right mm. they're not engaging in any other criminal behaviour other than buying the drugs mm-hmm. and they don't see themselves as part That's of part the drug the problem, culture yeah. they actually just do not see themselves and I've had this conversation with several people whereas the individual who hasn't got the means to buy the drugs but is addicted and goes into duns or whatever and robs whatever he needs to rob or she needs to rob to support the drug hand is criminalised. You know, that's where there's a big uh, gap in the tolerance level. You know? So I do agree with you. It's great that there's a massive conversation going on about the whole legalisation debate and you know, the Citizens' Assembly will come up with recommendations. Now, whether the government adopt them or not, we don't know. There, there'll be question marks around that. But at least... If there's a credible uh, set of recommendations in terms of drug strategy and policy going forward, which talks about decriminalising be personal use and that kind of thing, well, it will be a step forward. I'm not convinced that the most vulnerable people will benefit from that because, and this is my personal opinion, 
because the most vulnerable people who are chronically addicted to drugs are engaging in criminal behaviour to support it and they'll still go through the criminal justice process even though yeah, it's for drugs. You know, yeah, yeah, you know that yeah. you know but but look that remains to be seen. But there's good conversations about it. And like people have criticized me for for saying that, but I think it's important that we be realistic. There's no point in pretending that this isn't a big issue. It is a big issue, mm. you know. Okay, Anna. How would you find your time in Mount Joy, Eddie, now that you're out the door? I, I have to say I loved it. I, I struggled with the idea of retiring, although I wouldn't consider myself retiring, but I liked it. But uh, I think the time was right for me, you know, and I, I'd like to do something different. It's a strange thing to say because it is a sad place. You know, it is, you're looking at, you know, it's quite miserable in, 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 in many respects. Like people are deprived of the liberty. Hmm. It's a tough place to work in. There's lots of stress. Uh, you build up a resilience over years. I can remember I was telling somebody today, when I joined the prison service, about two or three weeks after I was posted, I was posted to St. Pat's, which is, is is part of Mount Joy, but at the time it was a detention centre. Juveniles. Juveniles, yeah. yeah. And uh, the riot in Mount Joy in 1991, it was a very big riot. About 60 or 70 prisoners got up on the roof and it was this really significant disturbance. And I was red raw and probably still red raw when I retired. I had a, an easy journey in many respects, but I was sent down to Mount Joy to support, help the staff. Went down in riot gear, never knew what riot gear was. And it was a really mad day. It went out, started around two o'clock, finished around 10 o'clock that night. And I remember we finished, uh, prisoners were back off the roof, they were in their cells and disturbance was quelled. And we went down to the staff mess for a cup of tea and a sandwich and people were you know, buzzing. It was really, 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 you know, uh, supposed to, what would you call it? The adrenaline was gone. Yeah. And when it was finished, I got into the car and I drove the North Circular Road and turned left at Fibsbeth heading home. And I remember my stomach was heaving and I pulled in and I puked all over the road because I, I, the whole magnitude of what was after happening trying to hit me I said and I never wanted the prison officer like I think it was that before my missus kind of pushed me into it and I remember going and said what the hell did you make me join this job for this is not for me you know I went back obviously and stayed there yeah. but you do build up a resilience and you do kind of you kind of get to enjoy the, you know the, the job and what goes with it but don't underestimate it it is a difficult place because it's hard for people it's hard for families you go in you see parents coming in with kids you know it's usually girls coming in with kids to visit the, yeah. the fellow who's in prison right and you know there's a real sense of uh, hopelessness about it like you know the I've always found that the visitors try to portray this thing that everything is good out there so your man is in prison who has a better in many respects a better setup because he's fed three times a day he can go to the gym he can go to school and the partner is at home trying to bring up a few kids trying to look after them trying to make him think that look we're fine while you're in here so there's a lot of sadness about it you know there's a lot of uh, trauma uh, associated with imprisonment and unfortunately as I said to you it's intergenerational like you know the children of people I knew in prison when I joined the job are now in prison, you know, so that needs to stop, you know. What was the biggest change do you think you found from the day you walked in to the day you walked out? Oh God, I don't know. I do, I do know Mount Joy, when I went in Mount Joy, I did my first week familiarisation in Mount Joy and at the time it was chronically overcrowded and there was no toilets in the cells, right? So you had a chamber pot. So the smell was horrendous. Now, I mean horrendous. And as a recruit officer, your posting would be the toilet end of the landing, right? So you'd stand down at the end of the toilet and the prisoners would come down with their chamber pot and they'd be emptying the contents of that and washing it. And it was just absolutely vile. 
So now if it was vile for me, think of how vile it was for the lads in the cells because there was three of them, maybe four in a cell and they'd each got a chamber pot and they didn't empty till the next morning. So I'm not, I'm not complaining and saying, poor me, I had these terrible conditions because the conditions were certainly worse for prisoners. But now, you know, accommodation is good. It's an old <coughs> prison, but the accommodation is good. In-cell uh, sanitation has made a massive difference. It, look, it's it's what should happen in a, in a modern country. Nobody should be using a chamber pot, you know, uh, for 12 hours of the day or whatever it is they're, while they're in their cell. So that's been a very positive change. There's there's uh, pockets of uh, in-cell sanitation across the country that they're still not done, but the majority of all our, vast, vast majority of all mm. our prisoner accommodation is quite good. So that has been a positive one. The chamber pot, is that a nickname on that? Just the washing out. The washing out, because Will R. White has it in his play, doesn't he? Yeah, that's what it's called. So that, but that was yeah. the first time I'd heard about that, and obviously, mm. yeah. Like, I know people that were in prison years ago, yeah. like, and stuff yeah. like that, and they, no one had mentioned that until we went to Will R.'s play that time, yeah. and that's yeah. a part of the play when he's the criminal, and there's a victim, and there's yeah. both, so it's, a, it's an unbelievable play. Yeah. Yeah. But I was saying to him after, and I, I never heard about that, but that is fucking yeah. mad. That's only, like... What, and that's in our lifetime. Oh, look, that's... Yeah, I would say... The last of it started to go around 15 years ago, less, maybe 12 years ago, you know. That's like, mad yeah, to yeah, me, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. See, there was, there was, there was underinvestment in prisons for years, you know, so they were old prisons mm. and uh, I suppose the priority was other areas of the economy, it wasn't so much prisons. Now, to be fair, the prison estate has dramatically improved, standards have improved, still not at the standard it probably should be at, or more, you mentioned about the six-month sentence, like the reality is, you know, we need to get totally get away from short sentences because first of all if somebody goes in for six months doesn't really avail of any of the services because they're only in there so they're spending their time with other people who are involved in criminal behaviour somebody doing a long sentence I'm not advocating to give everybody long sentences but somebody doing a long sentence can avail of addiction services can avail of psychology can avail of education they can get all those sorts of services and they can at least make an attempt to support themselves when they get back out but somebody doing six months just walks the yard you know, mm-hmm. they'll go in, they'll walk the yard, they'll go to the gym, they'll do, they might dip in and out of education, but they won't really avail of rehabilitative services. And I think it's important that, you know, the judiciary know that. Look, so when judges are considering a custodial sentence, you know, what's the objective here? Is it to support a person through rehabilitation in the prison system or is it just to get them in there out of the way? And if that's what it is, then that's really not supporting anybody, you know. Mm-hmm. That's only going to compound the problem because they're going to come out resentful and they're going to come out probably more tuned into criminal behaviour you know because yeah. we've had all the networking side of it yeah exactly yeah. the networking side of it yeah. the one thing that really kind of was an eye opener for me Eddie when we had you on the first time and then when you did invite us up to the joy that time as well is the separation that you have between the prison service and the guard you're like once someone comes in here it's like look I have to deal with you now forget what happened before this is like a new road you're on yeah. and what you do with them and the fact that you are saying to us, look, we try and get them in, we assess them and we see how long it is before we can get them out and whether that be an open prison or wherever it may be. And even when we went in there, like you thought we would have known a handful of people. I think you were shocked that we knew a lot more people yeah. that, we, that we did. Yeah. But like we were in there and I was rattled for days after. Like I had my head splats because I think it was a good, I think it was the fact that it was not out of the realms of possibility that like that could have been us and in well, you know, set of circumstances, do you know what I mean? I'll like give you one, one uh, story, Calvin. When I joined the prison service, so 32 years ago, one of the first people that I met, um, probably a week or two after I went into the uh, into the job, was my next-door neighbour. Right? My next-door neighbour from 
the south inner city from Mount Brown. Uh, now, he was a good bit older than me. He was probably five or six years older than me, right? But came from a small family and had lots of support. Now, they would have been considered a wealthy family in that uh, environment, okay? And unfortunately, he had started to take drugs and uh, got spiralled out of control, got involved in, in, I think, an armed robbery or drove a car for an armed robbery. But he ended up with HIV from his drug use and died, right? So... When you talk about that path and how fine a line it is between ending up on either side of the bars, I can completely identify with that because I would say I was very lucky in many respects. I know my own personality. We all know our own personality. I know that I would have, as a kid, I would have been one of the lads. I always wanted to be one of the lads. If there was, we call it, you might laugh at the word mischief, but if there was mischief, I was always in it, right? So it would have been a reasonable assumption for me to say, had I stayed in the environment I was in, I probably would have drifted into drug use, drug use given what I think of my own personality. Right? I, I went to train as a chef, left kind of left Dublin and missed that two or three years where I would have been most vulnerable and most at risk of getting involved in behaviours that would have dragged me down. So it is a very fine line. There's no doubt about it. Luck is a big element of it. A support is a big element. Family support, of course, it's a big element. But... Look is also a big element because I'm convinced, you know, and the more or the older I get and the more I look back at my behaviours as a teenager, I say, I was lucky that I got out when I got out because mm. had I stayed in the city, it was likely I probably would have drifted. And heroin became a big issue in the 80s, you know, mm. and that's so, you know. My wife, when she hears me saying this now, she'll go mad because I'm telling you too much about myself. Yeah. You know, but that's the reality, you know. Yeah, that's sure. I think we should all fucking count that lucky stars, yeah. boys. Fucking. But the thing is, I think we're all talking about like it's a past tense. I still say to myself every day, we're all just kind of one act away ending yeah. up behind bars. And I don't mean that like, in a, in a flippant way yeah, yeah I just mean like Calvin I don't have a kid so I'm just going to say you're walking down the road to a kid something happens with somebody there's an interaction you can go to prison easily mm. you know what I mean and shame like for a family and, or something like that yeah. any of us can end up behind bars you know what I mean And but yeah. being in there you invited us up Eddie and we got to kind of walk around and see the environment stuff like that and although we knew a lot of people that's still intimidating even when you know people so imagine if you didn't know anybody and you end up behind there that's an intimidating place to be and like I said, everyone out there is only one act away, away from up in there. But you know what's funny you, when you talk about visiting and the park room is a great example. You bring people in. Like you're, you're streetwise, the two of you, right? So you're long. So you wouldn't be overawed going into the prison. You'd be able to have the banter, right? But people going in from, we'd say, running clubs, wherever it might be, where they would have no experience of a prison and they run the park room with the lads and then they go for the cup of tea, as you know, afterwards, right? And so many have said to me, oh my God, that was just incredible. Because they'd have a conversation and they'd say, you know, and it could be somebody who's in for a very serious crime, very serious offence. And they say, but you know, and I know, and I'm not minimising that offence. And I know there's a, you know, there's a person traumatised because of the, that offence and all. But it doesn't really define the person. So when you have a conversation with somebody who's serving a sentence and they talk to you about their family and they talk to you about their kids and how much they miss their kids and how much they want what I want for my kids or you want for your kids, they want that for their kids. And you you kind of see the person in a different perspective to just a prisoner, you know, that they are a person. And again, I don't want to glamorise and I don't want to offend anybody by saying that. But, you know, very often the criminal offence doesn't define the person entirely. Does that make 100% sense? 100% that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. and uh, one thing that I will say is the lads that we were up there talking to, you could see what they were doing with that time. They kind of accepted it. Like, right, I'm going to be half of the 
X amount of years or months or whatever it may be, I'm going to make uses. And you could see there was people showing us poetry, painting, still what they own. There was people doing yoga courses and yeah. mindfulness and, and all. And you're music. Like, I mean, lads went, go into prison never realising they were musical, right? They learn an instrument there, they, you know, like we've, the prisoners' choir, I don't know what they have seen, like choir, you have a notion of, you know, religious and all that. These are phenomenal singers, right? Can sing any music, you know? And they never realised that, that, or never had the confidence. They didn't mm, have the yeah. confidence in their own community. But in here, in the prison, they get a different perspective and they develop skills that they didn't have. And they're very proud of them, and, and rightly so. You know? mm, yeah, and as well, credit to you, Eddie, because behind your back, I was kind of running with the lads saying, what do you think of the Eddie belly? You know, just, and every single one of them had nothing but good things to say about they that. That's because I warned them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so credit to yeah. you, Eddie, because I was asking them on the sly. Of like, you you oh, no, and you didn't do the park run with us. You left us out the owner. Yeah. Oh, look, I, I didn't want to show you. And you were in your running gear and <laughs> I all. didn't want to show you up. I said. <laughs> Put the running gear on and said, I know. <laughs> But I said it to my young lad with me and I said, you know, I don't want to beat the lad so yeah. <laughs> How about your man? He was running 5k in 18 minutes yeah. or something. And I was, What's the story there? How did he even get caught, Eddie? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Well, you see, that's like it just, just, just proves about training, right? Because yeah. he couldn't run it in 30 minutes and he was just built up this kind of pace. And, and there's a real competitive edge, as you saw oh, that. Huge. There's yeah. a massive competitive yeah, edge. Is, yeah. But it's a good competitive edge. Like, it's yeah. better than, we'd say, a negative approach. Like, yeah. Lads, uh, and a lot of the lads that run the park run, we're never into running, right? So it mightn't even been into sport, right? But it was a great opportunity to release some tension, you know, to develop a skill, to develop a fitness. And they get, you know, extremely proud of it. You know, they are, they are, and like there's a massive waiting list for people to do the, the park run mm. because obviously we can't have Everyone, 800 prisoners yeah. running around that might be a bit chaotic so we, <laughs> we kind of limit it you know yeah. but yeah you're right 18 yeah. minutes but even the encouragement because all the lads that were on the side then that weren't taking part you were handing out bananas and water and encouraging yeah. all the lads yeah. to finish Yeah, like to me it's a bit mad but I'm like you actually know him you deal with him every day so he's like your it's He's community, lads. It's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a community. community. Yeah. And it is a community, there's no doubt about it. And uh, look, at, I wouldn't be advocating prison as a great place because it's not a great it's place. It's not, but... But you see where people yeah. make the best of it. And yeah, that's what exactly. you do, they make the best. And that's the thing, like, there's like probably two roads you can down in prison and it's either redemption or resentment. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and there is both there. Like, yeah. you, you went into the main prison after it and you could see a tension a yeah. tension that's there they're not quite at that stage of we'll call it the journey in prison so there is still that resentment there's still that tension there's yeah. still that we aggression feel and that in the air yeah, it's yeah. that whole when I get out you'll see I'm going to do this yeah. and I'm going to do yeah. that yeah. whereas you talk to other people they're like when I get out I'm going to spend time with yeah. my kids I'm going to be the dad that I should yeah. be I'm going to bet on myself I'm going to get this job and you're like oh you have it mate you have a clue then you, yeah. you've yeah. accepted oh, I have three years in the sentence and I'm going to use these three years and this is where I'm going to be when I get out Whereas other people are like, we have three years and you see when I grow up, I'm going to do this yeah. and I'm going to get that in and I'm going to do that. And, and the funny thing is, most of the prisoners that you talk to, most lads, maybe in a group, because there is the herd mentality of people say, we're all together, and, you, know, we're all, you know, it's testosterone, we're not going to give in to anything. But you talk to lads on an individual basis and 99% of lads want their lives to change. They yeah. don't want this to continue and they absolutely don't want to see their kids yeah. involved. It, yeah. The kids, like it's heartbreaking to see the approach that lads have with their kids because their the relationship is broken down, especially uh, kids that we say four, five, six, seven, where they're, you're missing those three years, four years where a kid is going from a baby to, you know, to a, a young child. A young child. Yeah. Yeah. And then the relationship, is, it's very hard to reconnect. It's very hard to understand. And, you know, so it's a, the, the children are, they're distracted. They don't know what to say to the daddies. Like, it's its not an easy one, lads. It's its no. definitely not easy, you know? Yeah, and that's what, as well, though, even when we come out, we wanted to kind of say to people, like, 
I know a lot of people kind of think, oh, they have a handy in prison, and it's obviously people know inside the prison anyway. Yeah. But I've never, I didn't come out there being like, oh, I'd love to go back in there no. tomorrow. No, yeah, no. We, it's but, not handy. It's not handy, and it's, uh, you know, there's positives and there's negatives. Like I mm. do think, going back to your short sentence piece, pointless sending a person to prison for a short period yeah. because they won't benefit in any way, you know, from the services that are available available and to them. That's something as well you need to realise. You know, there's people who get locked up and this might be the first time that they've had time to reflect on their childhood or something that they've done in their life and it'd be the first time they can do that sober. Yeah. You know what I mean? They've they're not on access to like drugs or drink or whatever and you have to sit there with their thoughts and be like, right, I've done a lot of wrong in my life. I've a lot of things I need to get checked out. And then you have the option to go to counselling in prison yeah. and dealing with these kind of like uh, psychiatric elements of their life. And that's that's the benefit that they're going to get. And they realise that then, right, I'm going to tune in here. I remember a story. I remember uh, coming across, a, a, and this is, must be uh, certainly 25 years ago, a lad, he was about 19, he was in St. Pat's. And uh, I was on nights and I remember doing my checks and you're going, you're lifting up the flap. And he lifted up the flap and he's sitting bolt up in the bed crying. And chatting into him, the door, are you all right, what's wrong? He said, I'm grand, I'm grand, I'm grand. And then he says, tell me, mother, I'm sorry. And I said, oh, Jesus, now what does he mean by this? Like, has he made a decision? He's going to mm. do something, he's going to self-harm, whatever. And I did. So I remember calling the assistant chief officer who was in charge of the prison. And he came up, brought the key up, opened up the cell, and we both went into him. And he you know, kind of stopped crying, to compose himself a bit. And I said, look, you were crying, you were very upset. And I was a bit red raw, so I didn't know what to do. And uh, I said, what did you mean when you tell your mother, I'm sorry? He says. He says he'd been in and out of Pats maybe five, six times. And the mother, mothers always stand by their sons, right? So the mother was just the optimist in every respect, always forgiven for that. And he just had this fit of guilt that he'd put her through uh, misery. And the ACO was with me, was very seasoned off. She says, tell her you're sorry yourself on the visit, on, our ne- on your next visit. I said, I can't, I just can't, I can't speak to her. He says, look, just tell her, Ma, I'm sorry I put you through all this. I'm trying my best or whatever. And I'm doing okay, right? So about a month we, later, six weeks later, I was posted on the visits and that you'd be supervising the visit. And when the visit's over, you go down and you give the visitor a docket and that means your visit's over. And I remember going down to give the mother the docket and uh, I said to you, the young lad, I said, that's your mother? And he says, yeah, he says, that's my ma. And, and it was like as if she was visiting him in school. Like she said to me, how's he doing, officer? And I said, oh, he's doing great. He's going to school. And she was proud to hear that he was doing great. And he was proud that somebody was speaking up mm. about him in a positive way, you know. But it just shows you, like, nobody wants to put anybody through a difficult situation. Mm. Like, a young lad impressionable, 18, 19 years of age, got involved in bother, ended up in, in St. Pat's, and he was still thinking about his mother and how he was after putting her through yeah. that. And it always mm. stuck with me, you know. Yeah. Like it, it is, it is, it's a difficult, difficult situation. Yeah. Mm. Sad one. I know I said to you, uh, what's the biggest change? And you can't really take credit for bleeding the pots going out the window and real toilets get pouring in. But is there any change that you've seen in prison that you can say, do you know what, I had a part to play in that and I'm proud of that? Yeah, well, I suppose I, 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 I uh, now you're asking me to brag about what I can't I'm a very humble guy, lads. I can't do that. Uh, definitely have seen, uh, look at, I think I said to you before, my relationship with prisoners has always been, uh, I've never had a difficulty. I've never been abused on the street. I've met people in difficult situations and they chat away and, you know, be very respectful. I'd be respectful back to them. So I think the one thing I have seen across is a, a greater... The relationship between staff and prisoners is much more positive than it would have been when they joined the prison service. There's a greater level of compassion. Now, not everybody will say that. And some prisoners say, oh, it's a kip and they treat us like this, that and the other. My impression looking on is that the relationship between prison staff and prisoners is good. I would have always 
in my roles, try to lead by example, have a good relationship with lads, you know, and that's not to minimise the sense of that they're in prison and they're serving a sentence and all that. But, you know, you don't necessarily have to be oppressive. You can be pleasant, you can be polite, you can be professional, but you can be, you can communicate on an equal level. And I always, I was saying to somebody today, I think I said to you the last time, your accent and how you talk to people and the language you use and the approach you have with them can break down so many barriers and can also be the difference between aggression and conflict or, you know, a good positive relationship, working relationship. So I would think that one of the most positive things in the prison service over the last 10, 15 years is that relationship between prisoners and staff. And and that's borne out by the statistics in terms of assaults and the statistics around uh, prison disturbances. I mean, we touch, well, I'm gone now, so it doesn't matter, but touch wood, <laughs> we haven't had any major disturbances in our prisons in many years. And that is about down to, you know, the contentment between both sides. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. One thing you did say before is... You try and like lead the line. So you said lead for example, but you can't get all staff to fall in line. Yeah. And now that you're out, we can say it. But yeah. remember when we were up, we were dealing with one of the screws in there and he was an absolute wanker. Why? And you you look back and you're like, look, lads, I told you, we can't get them all to fall in line. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, if he's a prick to me and I'm only walking in and out the door, imagine what he's like to the boys in there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And there was just no need. Yeah. yeah. And do you know I what made it worse, it. Eddie? Because we had such a great experience in there. It was actually on the way out the door. Yeah. Something to do with getting your phone back, wasn't it? Yeah. Getting the phone back out of the shelf. Yeah. And he just got smart about it. And I was like, are you for real? How am I supposed to know, one, where <laughs> my phone is gone after handing it to you, and two, how to get out of here? Yeah. And then you, I you couldn't the possibly notes. comment now on that, but I do know what you're saying. But the reality is, for the vast majority of staff, there's a good relationship. Yeah. Of course, there are people who shouldn't be in the prison service. Mm. People shouldn't be in the guards, shouldn't be in... You know, every job well, has people that yeah. are not suitable. And they do drag it down and they do give a lasting impression. Like, it's like as you say, great experience, you enjoyed it immensely, but it's still stuck in your head about the individual who had yeah. the comment notes. So, unfortunately, that is a reality. Yeah. But on the flip side of it then... I remember a positive experience because you have to do what was a seven and a half laps yeah, it is joy yeah, to do he only did day. six he only did six <laughs> you did the seven and a half I, I knew that well, I remember when we were running like the lads were saying hello to the staff and the staff were saying hello back yeah, and I was yeah. like that's bleeding dead you know like they're mm, saying good morning mm, mm. blah 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 good morning blah 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 and I was like oh, that, that's good that's nice you know what I mean yeah. I was like Jesus it's it's good relationship in here and then that point. brick on the way out I know, like, mate, I know. but you know that, that's, that's like any part you go yeah. anywhere you, you know we're talking about the guard that you met who would say look lads don't and then the, the heavy handed guard that's yeah. that's life you know and it's about taking you know the good with the bad isn't it yeah I hear you on Eddie <laughs> yeah. have you got uh, more no that's it from me right well Brought to you in part two with you, Eddie. We can't yeah, no, thanks very much. I really appreciate it. No, thanks for coming in, Eddie. No, I look forward to seeing uh, the changes that you implement going forward. And I suppose you're probably going to see it everywhere now, are you? You're going to be a spokesperson now. For everything, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I absolutely am. I'm getting placards built and everything. And I'm yeah. going to walk up and down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but we're here to help if you need that. I know, and I appreciate that. And, and again, uh, thanks very much. All right, we'll wrap this one up. Take us out there, Shimon. Boom. Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app. What you waiting for? Put your back in it. Just a little more. The hip knocker. Go down, go down, go down.